Tim Ferriss. Greetings, sir. Two R's, two S's. Two R's, two S's. You know, you know, I kind of mess that up a lot. <laughs> Everybody messes it up. You're the only Ferris I know with two R's, two S's. Ferris Wheel doesn't have two S's. Yeah, Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller. Why Henry not? Ferris, my book editor. None of them. So how'd you earn that second S? That's what I really, that's the question of the day. How do you get a second S on the end of your name? I'm embarrassed to admit I actually do not know. That's that could right. be a typo you from sh- Ellis Island, but you, I don't you know. You shouldn't be embarrassed. Story. Can I tell you something? That whole Ellis Island typo thing, it's total BS. Total myth. Yeah, because think about it. It was very much in the interest of the immigration authorities to have the actual names of people, right? Second of all, people are coming in with papers. You don't get in without papers. Third of all, Ellis Island and the Immigration Service, whatever they are called back then, hired translators from just about every language that you could possibly imagine. So really, in my research, which was a long time ago, but I, find, I, I would argue that it's still um, at least 92% true, the vast majority of those people, the parents, the grandparents who said, well, my name was Varshashashevsky, but they made it Simon when I came here. <laughs> they didn't want to be Varshashashevsky well, over here, I and a, they changed it to Simon. I, I have a story about that. I'm Ellis Island. The you name, knew the Varshashashevskys also? No, but at Ellis Island, you know what my father's father's name was? Tell me. Greenberg. Really? And then after Ellis Island... Changes it for some reason. To Altucher? <laughs> to Altucher. I have no idea why. I think I know why. He was at the carnival, and there was a naked lady, and they said, hey, I'll touch her. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> ah! Mr. I'll touch her. Ba-dum-bum. Sorry. Been waiting Steven, for that one. Naked yeah. ladies at the carnival. I, I, I need to find out which carnivals on. you're going to. It's not the Greenberg Carnival. <laughs> Lots of New York City carnivals here. <laughs> Stephen, yes? do you have a question for our guest? I do have a question. Um, this is from Question of the Day listener named Julian Cook, who uh, tweeted us at QOD, which anyone of you can do. His handle is at World Cyclist. He says, so QOD, does altruism really exist? Does anyone do good without something for themselves? And actually, I have a corollary, co- I have a corollary to that question. Which you is almost that- had a coronary to that <laughs> yeah, question. Yeah, I almost had a coronary to that question. <laughs> Been stuttering lately. But, um, but a lot of people think that you have to do something bad to be successful. I get that question a Who lot, too. Who says that? I, all the time on my Twitter Q&As, I get a question like, can good people be successful? Really? So, correlated to your question, I'd like Tim's opinion on both questions. The, your, the second question being, can you be good and be very successful? Yeah, do you have to wow. c- cut corners uh, that gotcha. many people think? Because that, that's sort of their excuse why they might not be successful, the questioner, because they're a good person, presumably. Gotcha. So, they want to know. Let me... Take a stab at that one first, actually. So there's a book out there somewhere that was referred to me, not surprisingly, by a a very well-known private equity fund manager who is quite ruthless himself. But the book was called Something Like From Predator to Icon. And it talked about people who are now very well-known as philanthropists, Bill Gates, etc., who at one point were just cold-blooded killers, for lack of a better term, win at all cost. Bill Gates, if you're listening, he apologizes. I apologize in advance. Don't kill us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I didn't have a hit out on me, I will now. The the way I read into it, at least, is that it's not necessary to be bad to be financially successful. But people who do not care what others think tend to have an efficiency advantage when communicating or making decisions. You, you can, however, do that, I think, or strive to do that ethically like a, uh, Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines. He had a very clear mandate to be the lowest cost airline. And I heard a story, it might be apocryphal, of a journalist who went to visit him 
and admired how complex the business must be and how packed his days must be. And he said, oh, no, no, you could run this. And he said, we aim to be the lowest cost airline. And someone would come into his office and make a proposal. And he'd say, okay, I'm going to let you, you know, Jane, decide this one. And, he, and she'd be like, oh, I'm not sure how to go about it. He goes, does this help us be the lowest cost airline? No. Okay. <laughs> no. And then the answer is no. Uh, so I do think it's possible, but I think there is perhaps a secondary characteristic of what people would consider being a bad person. That is just not caring much about the flack that you will get for your decisions. So you can make important but unpopular decisions. Do you think it's the flack that you don't care about or you don't care about the after effect in real terms? In other words, is it the the damage to yourself and your reputation or your emotion, whatever, and that you have a very high tolerance for that? Or do you think it's the lack of empathy, right? Because you could say that if I make a business decision that I know is going to hurt a bunch of people in some way, financially, whatever— that you, you just put it in terms of, well, in order to be successful, I might benefit a little bit by not worrying about, let's say, the Wall Street Journal article that says it. So that's one dimension that sure. I can worry about, right? Well, there's if you look at, I think, also some of the examples that occur in this book, let's just take you know the Steve Jobs or the Bill Gates as two examples. Bill Gates may be a better example in this particular capacity. And you have a, a very, kind of, in some respects, Spock-like engineer. One could pose the question, is he being bad or unethical or amoral or just in some ways a utilitarian philosopher like a Peter Singer? So he's just asking, how can I do the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And if we have to break a bunch of eggs to make an omelet, that's the calculus I run as someone who looks at the numbers in the same way that he now looks at the numbers for, say, malaria or polio. There you have it. I make, right. a, you make a decision also, and it destroys a thousand people, but it helps a million you, and that's fine. You could also, now, ironically, with Gates as a model, you could use kind of predictive philanthropy and say, I'm starting something right now and I'm going to be five times more ruthless than anybody's ever been because I'm going to follow the Gates model, make so much by being monopolistic that I then have so much leverage when at the age of 50... I turn philanthropic. So does that still argue, though, that you have to kind of make a moral shift that many other people wouldn't make in order to be financially successful? I don't think you have to. I think it might be easier. But does easier justify <laughs> being what you would consider an evil person? I don't think so. I don't think it should. But it's easier cognitively to use broad labels like bad than to look at sort of the preconditions of what we name as bad and maybe choose a handful of those antecedents that we can incorporate into what we would consider a good mm. type of business model or life of entrepreneurship. So uh, I don't understand. What, what do you mean okay, by Okay, so what I mean by that is if we were to say, all right, we're, we're calling CEO or entrepreneur X to be bad. Why are we calling him bad or rough or abrasive or whatever it might be? And we list out those characteristics. Maybe some of those characteristics, which make him or her as effective as they are, can be borrowed and incorporated into a far more benevolent form of business creation. And I would argue, yes, they can, in fact. Maybe it's like a selective ignorance where they only reply to 0.001% of their email. That could be considered rude, but you could, it's not necessarily hurting anyone else, and you could incorporate that type of selective ignorance and focus into a fast-growing nonprofit of some type. So I don't, I don't think it's necessary to be bad. I just think those people have an easier time of seeing the means justified by their ends. So it also sounds like, I mean, you take the Herb Kelleher example. It sounds like he had a very clean, concise vision, and a lot of people bought into it, all his employees. 
chances are people are, are not going to buy into an amoral vision. So, you know, it's not like, hey, let's be cutthroat and kill all our competitors. They're probably most people won't buy into that vision. <laughs> um, but people did buy into, hey, I'd like to fly cheaply. This sounds like a good vision. So good. I'm going to do that without being immoral about it. The vision thing is also important. And, and you're, what you're saying is maybe Bill Gates had this vision of helping a billion people with a, a uniformity of operating system. And that was his focus. We're going to pause here for a moment. More answers right after the break. Oh, my God. I absolutely need a good razor blade. I am constantly cutting myself. But the good thing is, this is why I am happy to recommend Harry's razor blades. And if you're new to Harry's, I've got a special deal for you to try three of their expertly crafted five-blade German razors, a handle, and shave cream for just 10 bucks with the offer code QUESTION. Harry's razors will give you the best shave you've had in a long time. Harry's blades are super sharp and provide a close, comfortable shave. QOD's producer, Nathan was one of those people overpaying for razors. He even tried buying in bulk at big box stores. Nathan, what the heck are you doing? Now he uses Harry's razors, and he looks much more professional when he's trying to give us directions during podcast recording sessions. I would even say he looks mildly handsome. Harry's is the only shaving company that has both amazing quality and low prices. Their razors are German-engineered, five-blade cartridges, manufactured in a factory they own, which has been manufacturing this product for nine decades. Their quality is guaranteed, and Harry's will provide a full refund if you're not happy. Over 1 million people have already made the switch, and thousands more switch every day. Harry's factory direct prices cut out the middleman, ships right to your door, and they sell their blades at one half the price of the leading brand. Why pay $32 for an eight pack of blades when you can get them for one half the price at Harry's.com? The Harry's starter set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you can get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Harry's doesn't like the discount because their prices are already really low, but we've worked out a special offer for you guys. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code QUESTION. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code QUESTION at checkout. Just to play devil's advocate for uh, looking at someone who is viewed as, say, a cutthroat entrepreneur. Knowing them personally, I realize that if you are a good leader, you have to be good at making unpopular decisions that are important. Mm. In my reality, I find that many, 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 many people in positions of leadership and power are extraordinarily ethical and, quote, good. And in fact, I would argue that I think good character doesn't run counter at all to the pursuit of success. And in many ways, not all, but in many ways can really be a contributory factor. So I'm curious if you guys know anything harder than what I just bumbled my way through. In terms of the literature, what about John Ronson's book on psychopaths, where he basically says most Fortune 500 CEOs could somehow be rated as like a psychopath? I don't think it's a, you know, I don't think it's scientifically rigorous. I, I, I get don't know an email if he anything. Of, I get an email asserting something like that about two or five times a day. And then every time <laughs> I drill down, it's like what's where's the data? And it's like, well, I know I knew this one guy who yeah. ran over a puppy. And so I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. I just think it's a very appealing narrative. Because look, let's also be honest, there's a lot of um jealousy and schadenfreude in the world too. 
for sure. And when you see, you know, it's very natural for the, you know, 99,999 people there to say the one guy at the very top and say, oh, he, he must be a real bastard. He must be nasty to his family. He must not give charity. You know, he must not give ever, anybody a break ever because, like you said, James, you know, I'm nice, and the reason I'm not there is probably because I'm nice and he's not. It's totally a- agreed. I 100% agree. I think it depends a lot on the type of, if we're talking about business, the type of cohort of companies you're looking at. So, for instance, in the startup world, there are cases where you're looking at, say, businesses with network effects where it is a bloodbath. Right. I mean, you have everyone kind of like all the rats swimming in the bucket and there's only one that's going to make it out. Right. And so I think that breeds... It's a scary image. It breeds a very intense type of competition, but, which people have all opted into. So for right. them to turn around and then say, well, hold on, like that rat's stepping on my head, that's not fair. It's yeah, like, yeah. no, these are the rules of engagement that you signed but up for. But even that leads my mind then into like, let's say sports, right? So like there's a great essay written by Robert Lipsight, L-I-P-S. S-Y-T-E in the New York Times Magazine a bunch of years ago. We actually titled it Why Sports Don't Matter Anymore, I think, which turned out to be a really terrible headline because uh, sports still matter a great deal. But it was a really neat essay in that he made the point that in this ecosystem of competitive sport, the rules encourage you to do all the kinds of things that in society you're discouraged from doing. You're literally hitting people and stuff like that, but you're also intentionally deceiving people. You're hiding your plays from them. Everything about it you're encouraged to break the normal rules of normal society, right? But does that mean that someone who chooses to be a competitive athlete is inherently a person who lives outside the rules of society? No, it means that when they do the thing that they do, they adhere to the rules. So I would almost say the same thing even in the most competitive cutthroat business, which is it's competition. But here's a case, though. Like, take the Bill Gates example. It's a different world. Poor Bill the, Gates. <laughs> we keep making fun of Bill Gates. but the, so so We should send him a little something. Yeah. Box of chocolates. Nice. The question is, are you in a closed circuit or are you doing something that's inflicting damage on civilians? Good point. So I agree. If you sign up for the rules of engagement, but the real question is, are you hurting civilians that are outside the rules of engagement? I guess my only objection here, the only reason I'm devil's advocating so hard is that I think it's always a natural inclination to say, oh, yeah, well, they're they're nasty. They're mean. They're cheating. They're lying. And that's why why it's working for them. But I agree, though, that you can't – I actually think you can't succeed unless you're a good person. I think you can cut – Corners and like you say, Stephen, you, you eventually you're going to get caught if you do it long enough. So I think in order for long-term success, it's like Warren Buffett says, you know, it takes uh, a lifetime to build a reputation and five seconds mm. to ruin it. And I, I think that holds well, true. Well, that said, let's bring it back to part one of the two-part question, which was about altruism. So having said all that, does this, true altruism exist? And I haven't, I have a thought about this, but I'm very curious to know your thoughts. So again, from Julian Cook, does altruism really exist? Does anyone do good without something for themselves? What do you think, Tim? No. And that doesn't make it bad. I think that humans are self-interested. I think that we are evolutionarily programmed to look out for number one or our close tribe. I think everyone should read chimpanzee politics if they want to get a better understanding of that. And that people make decisions based on DNA and conditioning that leads them to look for a certain type of reward or lack of punishment. Mm-hmm. And that reward could be as simple as feeling good about yourself. I would so like to say I disagree with you entirely, but I happen to not. I mostly agree with you entirely. James, I'm curious, what about you? You think I, I agree with that as well. Like, you take an extreme example, like, should you always, l- let's say you have the choice to always spend time helping people, even though it's against doing what you want to do. Maybe you want to do something else. If you always do that, you're going to be just permanently unhappy. So that's kind of just the extreme of the opposite of this. I think in general, people 
want to be happy. And if it fits in and they're also going to be doing good, they'll do it. But I don't necessarily think you can choose to be always altruistic. Uh, and even if it goes against what you want to mm. do, I think you're going to more often choose essentially what you want to do. I also think there are different, many different types of altruism, right? You have public altruism where you're doing altruism for, say, primarily PR purposes, perception modification purposes. You have feel-good altruism where you're right. doing Warm something. Glow, they call it. Right? Yep, you're doing something that makes you feel good, which may or may not be effective. I think it often is ineffective. And then you have the so-called effective altruism movement, which is led in part by a young guy named William McCaskill, uh, who I interviewed on my podcast, who is the youngest tenured philosophy professor in history at Oxford. Fascinating, fascinating guy. And that particular breed requires people to do make decisions that puts them behind the scenes in a very unsexy way, but very effective way. And I think that's perhaps the hardest class of altruism, mm. in a sense, for humans to stomach, because you're choosing on a mathematical, sort of calculated basis to invest in malaria nets with none of the hoopla, none of the sexiness of whatever the charity du jour might be, say disaster relief, which is very often, according to effective altruism, a poor investment. Terrible. Uh, and uh, so it's, I think it's important to realize also uh, for this, this particular person who tweeted in that there are many different breeds of altruism. Right. So I hate to say it, not not because I hate to agree with you guys. I hate to say it because I think to a lot of people it might sound depressing to say that there is not such a thing as pure altruism. And for anybody who wants to read uh, read about the scientific literature on this, there's an economist at the University of Chicago named John List who created a bunch of experiments in the lab and elsewhere following up on the work of a bunch of other economists, primarily James Andrioni. And they argue that, you know, the primary form of altruism is what they call warm glow altruism as opposed to pure or unpolluted altruism. But here's the thing I would argue that would make this a little bit less depressing if you're the kind of person who gets depressed about the idea of there not being altruism is even if what we all just said is true and that almost always people are altruistic for some kind of reward, subconscious, not public, whatever. The fact is, if you believe in the causes, a better environment, a better political system, uh, uh, alleviating distress from people in natural disaster, poverty, whatever, if you want to help that, the single best thing you can know is how altruism actually works and what makes that people actually give. Because if you make the assumption that there is this huge, pure altruism, then you're going to do a lot worse of actually helping the people than if you understand how altruism truly works. You know, a great example of that, let's say you're trying to convince people to help the environment. Instead of the argument being, do this because it's good, the argument is usually, do this so your kids can grow up in a cleaner world. So you still have to give somebody an internal motive as opposed to just simply doing good. And, and marketers behind these altruistic movements know that. And, all, mm-hmm. and, and also to, to build on, we used it, Stephen, about the potential to become depressed when having this type of conversation or these types of realizations is to point out that it may not be either or right? in so much as it's not, does this person want to truly do good or do they just have a selfish or self-interested motive? It's both. I think it very often is both. And that to take that desire to do good and convert that desire into action, you just require incentives. Right. Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for joining us for three guest-hosted QOD episodes. It's been great having you. 
And uh, you're awesome on a lot of levels, and we really appreciate it. And um, where should— Definitely um, have to come back at some point. I'd Next love time to. you're in New York, stop by the studio. I would love We're to. We're always here. We never leave. Where should people—where is the first stop on the interwebs where people should go to find what you're most proud of these days? Uh, to find what I'm most proud of and all the weird experiments that I'm doing, I think just four-hour work week, F-O-U-R-H-O-U-R, fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out as the place to go. That's where the podcast is probably where I'm putting in the most effort right now, the Tim Ferriss Show. There's the TV, there's the blog, there's all sorts of stuff. Okay, good luck with everything and thanks. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys. Hmm. We've received word that there are still questions at large. Find out which one we're taking down next time right after this. Just what is the mysterious secret of Uncle Bertie's botanarium? This is it, Solander. My Uncle Bertie's botanarium. My word. Look at that big statement. It sounds very tantalizing. Could it be a treasure map? Or some sort of evil flower? No. It's the latest Howl original starring Jemaine Clement. You will become famous. You will go down in history. Do you have any psychic credentials, cheesemonger? Uh, yeah, they're just out the back. Hang on a minute, sir. Always check their psychic credentials. Very astute, sir. Very astute. This 12 part adventure series is set in a fantastically imagined new world with original music, brilliant sound design, and a talented cast from Wellington, New Zealand. Nettled Spaghettarium Nocturnum. The night spaghetti. It looks like spaghetti. Yes, and nibble the stem. What does it taste like? Extraordinary. It tastes like spaghetti. Yes, spaghetti. But specifically when you eat it at night. Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium today, only on Howl. Next time on Question of the Day. What do you think the future of podcasting is? Like, I, and the reason I ask is, TV, you're like watching people, and radio... I don't know, is podcasting like radio or podcasting seems like just two people talking? It's, it's I think not podcasting that is like um, hoop rolling. Remember hoop rolling? Question of the Day is produced and mixed by Nathan Rossborough with Allison Hockenberry. 